Hi, I'm Kate Carrigan. Welcome to Croaky Voices. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being made, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. That's the sound of COVID-19, the work of scientists from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who've translated the spike-like protein on the surface of the virus into musical notes. More on music and the coronavirus later when we catch up with a Sydney GP whose viola downtime helps him with the stress of dealing with the pandemic. And I've found myself really craving music as a, a solace and comfort. Before then, if you're living on the streets, grabbing a couch wherever you can, or setting up a makeshift tent in a park, heeding the advice to stay at home and self-isolate may seem like a pipe dream, a luxury you just don't have. As yet, there's no national strategy, but individual states and territories have been responding, and a recent online forum was held by the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness to discuss solutions. Alison Barrett, a public health researcher at the University of South Australia, has been looking at the particular vulnerabilities of the homeless as part of a health wrap for Crokey News. Well, for many reasons, a lot of people experiencing homelessness have pre-existing conditions that might make them more susceptible to getting infections. Also, crowded housing or sleeping outside in crowded locations as well, so they can't actually self-isolate or distance themselves from people. And they have limited access to healthcare and limited access to hygiene, so hand-washing and all those public health things and messages that we're being asked to do to prevent spread of COVID-19, it's nearly impossible for them to do. That's right. So they haven't got access. They can't just, uh, as you say, wash their hands or self-isolate. They mightn't have a room to go to. So what are we doing to make sure we're giving them some emergency accommodation? Well, it seems as though most of the states and territories around Australia have some kind of plan either they're advocating for or it is in place to provide emergency accommodation for people experiencing homelessness. So, for example, in South Australia, they have been able to accommodate about 250 people in hotels and motels around the CBD that are at the moment unoccupied because of the lack of travel. Other states, are, as well as having this emergency accommodation aspect, They're providing really assertive outreach programs, screening, having nurses in teams, um, providing food and food for pets as well because they found that a lot of people had pets with them, masks and sanitizer. Yeah, there's a few different ways that the states are trying to help. It must be really important for them to get some emergency accommodation because you think a lot of homeless people... The, the places they congregate are really the places that are being closed down, places like parks, yes. like public libraries. Exactly. And one of the papers I um, read this week, based in the United States, that's exactly something that they pointed out. If the city's closed down, then these people don't have places to sleep where they might normally sleep. So they become maybe a little bit more transient, so they're travelling or unable to find places. So it is really vital that they are looked out for and 
emergency accommodation is made available for them. Alison spoke of the response in South Australia, where over 250 people have been housed. Kim Holmes, the state manager with NIMI, a community-based organisation providing services to improve mental health and well-being in local communities, took part in that forum. She says the state was early in recognising the vulnerability of the homeless. That's because rough sleepers already live with lowered immunity. They're often living in close proximity to each other in improvised dwellings or on the, on the street. And there's no ability for people to practice hand hygiene or the other physical distancing strategies. And so the South Australian Housing Authority's response was to provide emergency accommodation uh, for individuals to be able to um, both um, protect themselves from infection but also reduce the risk of transmission across the homelessness community. That must have been quite a challenge. How were you able to source this accommodation and has it been successful in getting a lot of people off the streets? So currently we've got 256 people that are in motels and hotels. The Bush Telegraph and our collaborative agency were enabled to reach rough sleepers quite quickly and most people were accommodated within the first two weeks. On the other side, hotels and motels, as we approached them, were telling us that they were running on about 10% of their usual occupancy. Some hotels and motels were having to close down and were very happy to assist with accommodating people, which meant that they could stay open and continue employing their workforce as well. And are you confident that this will be a solution for some time to come or are there other plans afoot to put them in more permanent accommodation? So as we speak, um, the South South Australian Housing Authority, um, along with our other partner agencies that uh, work in the Adelaide Zero Project um, and particularly Hutt Street Centre and Baptist Care that are working with us on this, we are absolutely turning our minds to what are the long-term arrangements. So everyone that's in the motels and hotels receives a daily support visit. So we're in contact with everyone every day. Alongside of that, everyone continues to receive or if they're new to us, will be allocated a case manager. And those case managers are working with people around what their their needs are for the long term. Uh, Alongside of that, housing is being um, allocated through the South Australian Housing Authority and a range of other options are in exploration. And have you been able to follow up this housing, this accommodation with health checks, making sure that they haven't got uh, the virus, that their other illnesses or other health challenges are being met? Yes. Um, So we've collaborated with SA Health Housing Hospital Avoidance Team, also Eastern Community Mental Health and Drug and Alcohol Services, along with our primary health teams at each of our agencies and Nemo National, Hutt Street and Baptist Care. As people are established and transitioned and moving to longer-term accommodation, we will be wrapping around them what we call post-crisis support, which is support for people to settle into their homes, but also connect them in with the services and supports that they'll need in their new community. In a perverse way, could this then be an opportunity to really improve the lives of the homeless in a really sustainable long-term way? 
So in Adelaide, um, for the last two years, there's been the Adelaide Zero Project, a collective of government, non-government agencies and community members that have all been working consistently to achieving zero homelessness. And it has absolutely changed their environment, having the pandemic in our community. It has enhanced that collective approach. You know, this is a team that's been working with this group of people for a very long time without a range of options that are now available to people. While it's also been very complex and challenging, we can see that what's happened here is has the, the opportunity to have some really long-term benefits. Hello, it's Tim Senior here. That's Tim Senior, a GP at the Thurrawal Aboriginal Corporation Community Controlled Health Service in southwest Sydney. He's one of the thousands of health workers facing the challenges posed by COVID-19. We're quite anxious about it. About 90% of our patients are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, mostly Aboriginal. So we see quite a few people with... Um, multiple chronic diseases, including ones that make people vulnerable to COVID-19, chronic respiratory conditions, renal disease, diabetes. So there's a real familiarity in our community that there's a, a lot of people who would be at high risk of quite severe outcomes if COVID got a hold in our community. How well yeah. prepared are you as a clinic? Do you have PPE? Do you have masks? Do you have those sorts of things that you need to keep yourselves and your patients safe? Yeah, we're reasonably well prepared. We've switched to doing a lot of telehealth. We're only seeing face-to-face where it's absolutely necessary. The community have had a real understanding of their sort of requirements for social distancing and the service in the community have actually been making sure they're staying in contact with elders and vulnerable people and taking them fruit and veggie boxes out. We've got supplies of masks and have access to goggles and gowns and things. And we've got more on order. It, it's adequate. I think if there was a big outbreak in the community, that would be more difficult as to how we manage that. For testing and things, we're referring people elsewhere. The huge part of what we've been dealing with has actually been um, non-COVID-19 illness, including significant illness at times, and a lot of COVID-19 anxiety. Yeah, how do you handle that? It's obviously really a very a very real issue and people are concerned and they haven't got their normal social networks how are you managing that are you able to ramp up that mental health support for people yeah so we have a social emotional well-being team who are staying in contact with people by phone and so there's a lot of phone work going on there's a lot of making sure that people are contacted and that people are going okay one of the difficult things is the anxiety is well placed I mean I think Sometimes it's not helped by rumours going around. So I've heard a few rumours about people who've tested positive in the local community that I think are untrue, but sort of people get very anxious about those rumours. And so trying to be completely open about the risks that are faced, which may or may not be as bad as they're sometimes imagined to be, and doing what we can to be in control of those risks, the social isolation, physical distancing, really good hand hygiene. So we're able to use the knowledge that people haven't had it in the community as far as we know 
yeah, as a way of reassuring people. And people are very anxious about actually going to hospital, for example, just because they know that that's where people with COVID-19 will be presenting as well. Well, one of the general health messages during the pandemic is to look out for neighbours, friends and the vulnerable. Tim says this is something that's always been part of the culture of his local community. That general shift towards a more communal living, that's how this community and many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities function anyway. They're looking out for each other, looking out for elders, making sure that they're okay. That actually hasn't changed. The other thing I think is that everyone knows someone who is vulnerable or is sick from other conditions. and People have taken to the measures that they need to stay well. People haven't been going out unnecessarily because they understand the consequences of that possibly better than some other communities where they're not so used to being unwell. But what about you as a healthcare worker yourself, you as a GP, how are you handling it? How are you handling the the stresses and uh, those day-to-day issues with your own health, with your own anxiety? Mm, It's a really good question. I think um, almost all of the health professionals I meet are working at increased levels of anxiety. And so my feeling is that I expect to catch the COVID-19 virus at some point during this pandemic. I think as health professionals, we don't uh, get to avoid that. And I'm not so worried about getting it myself, but I am worried about getting it without knowing and passing it on to people who are more vulnerable. All of us are managing our anxieties in different ways. And I think we have to be very proactive and definite about how we acknowledge and and manage those anxieties and so for me one of the things I've noticed um, I'm really lucky because it's Lent and so I've actually given up alcohol for Lent so that's been really good for me (laughs) so I am looking forward to having a small glass of wine come Easter and I've found myself really craving music as a, a solace and comfort in the lead up to this I was playing in a couple of orchestras and both of those had their concerts cancelled or postponed one of my ways of staying sane in general life in the old days when it was normal was um, going to see the Australian Chamber Orchestra regularly. Like that's been removed for me. I've got friends who are musicians and suddenly all their work has disappeared. So I've sort of resolved in a few ways to be generous. So I'm donating my tickets back to the Australian Chamber Orchestra so that they can keep working uh, and seeing there's an opportunity to play music in my house. So I've actually commissioned Andrew Ford, a composer and radio national presenter, an excellent writer on music. So I've commissioned him a solo viola piece to practice and work up for the time when I am just purely confined to the house and not able to go out. I thought nothing better than than solo viola, keeping the art sector going. And it's actually based on a beautiful old song by Purcell, a very ancient English composer, called O Solitude. And so the piece that he's written for me is called In My Solitude. So it's a perfect sort of coronavirus quarantine piece. I thought these are unusual times, so let's do something unusual and unprecedented that I wouldn't normally have done. Mm. Well, music does seem to be a really wonderful thing a lot of people are turning to it so it does sustain a lot of people through lonely times it's been really interesting on social media how much people turn to whatever the art is that that does it for them some people taking up painting my oldest daughter's taking up embroidery brand new so people sort of turning to artistic pursuits to occupy themselves it feels like there's this new ancient tradition being revised of domestic 
culture, domestic art going on, which in my field of music, that's where the idea of chamber music arose. And so I think we see this because people have time to do it and human beings need those sorts of things during times of anxiety to sort of sustain you when everything around you is changing and unstable. Bark from Dr. Tim Senior and his viola to see us out this time around on Croaky Voices. Be sure to visit us at croaky.org and join the conversation. You can subscribe to Croaky News for just $60 a year and help fund the health stories we love to share. And listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.